Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Kristen Higgins is the queen of warm and funny small town romance. Hers is a world of real life, true love, and lots of laughs, and her millions of readers love her for it. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Kristen talks about staying true to what you know when the market might be screaming for something else, and why she's ruthless with her own work. But before we talk to Kristen, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Kristen's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Kristen. Hello there, Kristen, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. Look, just beginning at the beginning, I always like to begin in a once upon a time frame. Was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you just had to write fiction or your life would be the lesser for not having done it? And if there was, what was the catalyst? You know, there there wasn't a moment like that. Um, I wish there were. It sounds really great um, to be sort of knocked on your on your side by wanting to do something. I really wanted to be um, a pediatrician, <laughs> and um, and I, I still think that would be great. Except that I have no aptitude for math or science, so um, so I never thought about being an author until I was. Uh, let's see, 36. And my son was three years old and in nursery school. And the day was approaching where he would be in school all day. And I thought, okay, I've got a couple of years before that happens. And I really would love to stay home with the kids and be the person to get them off the school bus and, 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 you know, be around for all their events and everything. Um, Because I had been a stay at home mom until that point. And um, my husband was working two jobs, so I knew that it wouldn't really be fair for the kids to go off to school and for me to be alone for eight hours and not contribute to the family finances. So I thought, okay, I can bartend (laughs) or maybe I could write a book because I loved reading. If, If anything knocked me on the side of the head with a baseball bat, it was the love of reading from an early age. Um... I learned to read when I was four and books made up a huge part of my life. Um, And I, so I felt qualified in one respect that I had just read thousands of romance novels and I thought, I bet I could write one. I think I understand them well enough to write one. And, um, and why not? I had worked in advertising, so I had been a professional writer. So I had a few advantages there and um, and I sat down to give it a try. Fantastic. Now, that first book, I think, was Fool's Rush In. It sounds like romance was obviously the natural genre for you. Was Fool's the first manuscript that you ever finished? Well, it was. Um, I had started another manuscript um, 
which is now sort of a joke for me. It was a, um, a historical romance set in Ireland during the potato famine. <laughs> so if you're familiar with my books, you think it was what, Kristen? Um, so I just, I started to write that book and, and for some reason I thought it was a really good idea. And then I went to a writer's conference and I realized I have no knowledge of this era. I'm just kind of making things up as I go along. It was really depressing, as you can imagine, set during the potato famine. And um, and I said, you know what I would I should really write is a romantic comedy set in contemporary times, set in a small town, because that's what I loved to read, and that's where I lived. I live in a small town, so um, so I thought it, then I'd be writing about what I knew. And so Fool's Rush In was started actually at that conference and finished about six months later in terms of the first draft. And then I spent another year revising it and reading the best authors in the genre like Susan Elizabeth Phillips and Susan Wiggs and Julia Quinn and really trying to educate myself as a reader and a writer. Yes, um, you've got humour in all of your books, a lovely sense of humour. And I, I just wonder if you were the sort of young woman who was the class clown or who deflected awkwardness by joking about it. Not really. I mean, I I think um, I was a quieter kid. I wasn't really the class clown type. I went to Catholic schools and the class clowns were punished. <laughs> so I tried to avoid that at all costs. Um, although I did get whacked in the head with a Latin book once by Sister Eleanor. Um, so I think I was sort of quietly funny um, and also a good listener. So I think that that's a really essential tool of a writer, but especially of a humor writer. Um, is to be able to listen, to know a good story when you hear one, to um, to get down the pauses and the beats and the punchline. So, um, so yeah, being a good listener. And I have a very funny family. We love to um, make fun of ourselves and each other. And um, especially we're slapstick people. You know, I, I once said nothing gives me as much joy <laughs> as my mother falling. <laughs> because she'll, you know, I remember one time it was slippery out, it was icy and we were getting into the car and then she was just gone. She just slid right under the car. And I said, mom, mom, where are you? She said, I'm here, Kristen. I can't get up. And um, those are the kind of things, those kind of moments that I love to <laughs> revisit. Um, Sorry, I know that feeling of just laughing when you know that you really should be stay, staying really serious, but you just can't help it. Exactly, exactly. And my mom <laughs> is such a good sport um, that she was laughing too. <laughs> so we have a good time. Um, so I do love to incorporate humor in my books because I like to laugh. I like to, um, you know, be entertained. And and, um, and I think humor is something that's so, I create such a bond with the reader. If you can laugh with someone, then you like that person or you understand them. And so I think it's a great way to create intimacy with the reader. Mm -hmm, yes. Well, if we fast forward more than 10 years and sales of more than a million books, you've now written 18 books and you've gathered a whole um, shelf of awards from serious and frivolous publishing bodies. I mean, I'm impressed that you've got Wall Street Journal Awards amongst your awards. It's not just romance or Rita Awards. Right. Um, 
You've written series and standalones. Mm -hmm. What do you enjoy most about writing and do you prefer the series or the standalones? I um, I love them both. You know, when you write a book that's not connected in any way to another book, you have a completely fresh slate. But that also means more work for you as a writer. You have to invent the place, the townspeople, um, the issues that the setting might bring up. All the characters are new. So I wrote um, the Blue Heron series, which is a five-book series about um, a town in Western New York where they grow a lot of wine. Um, they grow a lot of grapes and make a lot of wine. And um, so that was really fun to write. It was um, planned to be a three-book series about the three grown children in this one family. And then it it morphed into five um, when the um, heroine's best friend was such a fun character that I decided to write her story too. And then she had a twin brother, so he had to have a story. Um, and in that respect, it was very easy because I knew where I was going. I knew the supporting cast. I knew the town because setting plays such a big role in my books. Um, the town is very important. And and yet it was also harder because I had to adhere to what I'd said in previous books. So a tossed away comment might be something that traps you later. So for example, I said that one of the characters was divorced and um, I had never really thought about that character and his past romantic life, but it was there, it was in print. And so I had to um, make an ex-wife for him. <laughs> um, and sometimes you don't know who the, you think you have an idea of who the hero and heroine will be. And then it turns out not to work out, you know, things like, oh, that's, that's too easy of an arrangement. They're really not going to make a great couple. Um, who else have I got? Or does somebody come to town who's new? Um, so there's challenges and freedom in both standalones and series, I think. Sure, sure. I, I guess that was that Jack that was divorced yes. and then you had to make, yeah, that was an interesting one that because it was believable that he might have married that sort of girl and then it was believable exactly. how it only lasted eight months. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, Jack and Colleen were supposed to be together in my imagination and then I thought there's no good reason reason for them not to be together already. There's no conflict for them to overcome. There's no, um, nothing standing in their way. They're, you know, perfectly suited for each other if they wanted to be together. Why has it taken so long? So I thought, okay, so that also felt a little incestuous, you know, um, to have Jack marry his sister's best friend. So I, um, I kind of did a, a census of the town and I thought, who is interesting that I already have to work with. And so uh, Emmeline was the hero for Jack. And she was kind of an unlikely heroine. Um, certainly, I don't think anybody would have guessed that she was uh, standing in line for a romance. <laughs> but she was there. She was sassy and fun. She had a great personality already established from a previous book. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I like her. And I like that she's kind of the unexpected choice. Yeah, that's great. Um, as you've mentioned, your books are, are very strongly influenced by the small community setting. Um, and I wonder, is there a particular fascination that you have for uh, the equivalent of the English village life in America? Well, I live in a small town in New England. Um, we have about 6,000 people, I think. 
And I grew up here. So I grew up here, then went off to college, then lived in um, in a city and then moved to New York City when my husband and I were married. And then when we decided to have kids, we said, you know, let's go back to Connecticut and be close to my extended family um, and my mom. And so living in a small town is very interesting Everyone really does know everybody else's business or has heard of it forthhand. Um, You know, you can't get more than two degrees of separation away from anybody. Um, I'm still known as Noelle's daughter in this town and, um, and my children's mom, you know. And there's something really comforting about that. And there's something really maddening about that as well. Um, You know, there are days when you crave, um, anonymity or just being able to go out and not run into six people that you know. Um, And then there's the histories that go together like, oh, he was mean to me on the school bus when I was in third grade. I will never forgive him. (laughs) So so I do love that little microcosm uh, of a small town. And I think they're really uh, appealing to readers. I mean, the trend has been so strong of small town romance. But when I was new to writing, it wasn't. It was, we were kind of coming off of sex in the city and a lot of romantic suspense. And so it was either chiclet set in Manhattan where, you know, everybody wore fabulous shoes and worked at a magazine, or it was, um, you know, she's a U.S. senator and he's her bodyguard that kind of thing. And, um, and so I was writing romantic comedy in a little bitty town and, um, and it worked. I think it worked for the same reason that I wrote it because a lot of people live it and it feels very, um, warm and close in terms of community. When you read a small town romance, you think I would like to live there. Yes. Yes. There's been a definite trend in the romance genre since 50 shades of slightly more explicit sex or even more than slightly more explicit sex. (laughs) I must admit, one or two of my favourite authors went in that direction. I just didn't really enjoy it very much. Um, But you've said that you generally keep your romantic action. It stops at the bedroom door. Have you ever felt any commercial pressure to be a bit more explicit? Um, Actually, the opposite is true. By and large, my readers say, I really appreciate that you close the door. It can be very sexy and uh, romantic and like what I call emotionally sexy. Um, but I, I, I'm I, not good at writing love scenes and I don't really love them as a reader. It takes a very talented author to make me really invested in the love scene um, because we've read it so many times and um, you know, we all know what happens. So something really special has to happen other than just, you know, the usual. <laughs> I'm getting in I'm getting into trouble here <laughs> as I talk. <laughs> but um but my readers tend to say thank you for writing clean books that I can share with my mom, that I can share with my teenager. Um and uh only once did I get a really fun email from uh, a woman who said, I'm, I'm 87 years old and I wouldn't mind if you turned up the heat factor because I have to get my jollies somehow. <laughs> so <laughs> I loved that. Um, but I think there's room for, for every heat level. You know, I think that, um, you know, there are certain scenes that I've written that are very, um, steamy, but we just don't go 
all the way with the characters. We do close the door. Um, and, and then I've read some really, um, explicit stuff that's beautiful and really emotional and meaningful. So I, I love that there's this whole range. Um, I never got pressured to, to get more explicit. And, um, and if I had, I would have said, no, sorry, it's just, I'm, I'm just not really good at it or comfortable with it. So, um, it seems to have worked out pretty well. Yes, indeed it has. You mentioned the popularity of sex in the city when you started out and You've also said that your characters are not so much the rich and beautiful. And I, I read the whole Blue Heron series, I must admit. I found it totally addictive. And I loved the way that, for example, Jessica and Levi, who are a couple of the, quotes trailer park kids. And mm-hmm. so in the small town, as you say, they, they sort of are in danger of forever having that label of the kids from the trailer park, even when they're 50 years old. But you gave them lives of self-respect, love and fulfilment. And I do imagine you get a good response from your readers to that approach. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's an opportunity to create tension and conflict that's more than just the romantic uh, tension and conflict. So, you know, in this in this area, as is true with just about everywhere, um, you know, there's the, the rich and the poor or the seemingly rich um, and, and the poor and labels and and opportunities that are given to one group that aren't given to another. So um, I do try to work that angle because I think it's it's just a fact of life that, you know, if you if you grow up in, in certain parts of my state, you're going to go to a great college and you're going to have a really solid uh, secondary education, you know, up and through high school. And and if you live in some of the cities in my state, you are guaranteed not to because we're so erratically funded. Um, and and to, to see someone come out of that, um, out of poverty, is so rewarding as a, as a reader, you know, or as a, a story on the news or something where you see someone who has, who has overcome the odds like Jessica and Levi um, making lives for themselves. Uh, Levi joins the military. Jessica puts herself through college in little bits and pieces. Um, and in my um, Cambrian Hudson series, it's a wealthy town set outside of, of New York City. And, um, and so you have that too. You have the city looming in the distance where, you know, a lot of people commute to work and you have, you know, New York as this backdrop, almost in the backyard of, of this city. And then you have the regular people. Of the of the city, the people who feed the um, wealthy folks and and who make their clothes and um, rent their buildings and that kind of thing. So I love I love exploring that as an author, and I think it's um, it's it's probably an uh, an element in all my books now that you've brought it up. So well said. Yes, and and it's interesting because it does feed into the next thing I was going to ask you about, and that was. Susan Elizabeth Phillips did mention in an, in an interview last year that she thought you were moving slightly away from romance and more towards women's fiction. And obviously your romance has quite a lot of not so typical romantic elements. Is that a conscious choice on your part? I think it's an organic um, part of my writing. I didn't really have a career plan. I, I still don't. <laughs> um, I take my career book by book 
And so even when I was writing the series, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll try this. I'll give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. Um, if it goes well, you know, yay. And if not, I'll just keep doing what I had been doing, which were, um, standalones. But the move to women's fiction was just kind of a natural drift. I think all my books have those elements. Usually I'd say the difference is that in women's fiction, um, the male point of view isn't told as much. Uh, whereas in romance, often it's almost a back and forth conversation in one chapter of his one chapter of hers. Um, and I think that the issue in women's fiction is more about the female protagonist's journey towards overcoming some of the issues in her life, whether they're, you know, financial or emotional family issues, um, circumstances, and the romance is part of that journey, but it's not the central journey. And the other thing that's very much there in your books is an interest in sisterly relationships. It's there in the Blue Heron series. The sisters are very, well, mostly close, sometimes not close, but they're very sisterly. And also in Cambrian Hudson, you, you feature sisters. Have you got any sisters yourself? And what is the fascination with sisters? I... I do have a sister and she is wonderful and we're, we're very close. Um, we always have been, she's I think 15 months younger than I am. So she was just a grade behind me in school and she was my best friend growing up. We, we live in a rural area and, um, we had one other girl who lived close enough to play with us, but pretty much it was her and me. And I think in some respects, there's no, person who knows you as well as your sister, whether for good or for bad, you know, because you grew up together, you share genetics, you, um, you have the same parents, the same relatives, you've been at the same holidays. So you have this, this history and this richness of shared experiences that I think is so impactful in our lives. So, um, in, in, uh, one of my books, the sisters are adopted, so they didn't have that shared history. And that makes kind of an interesting um, dynamic between them. In another book, they're half sisters. So again, they didn't have exactly the same upbringing. Um, and I do think there's something really primal about the sisterly relationship. Um, and I think it's so interesting the way two women can see the events of their lives that were often the same in such different lights and with such different perspectives. And I, I love exploring that. Yes, I, I must admit I'm one of four girls and that is just so true. We are all so different in the way that we remember what happened in in our home and between our parents, etc. Quite different lessons taken away by each of us. So yeah, that's very, very true. Look, moving away from perhaps talking about the specific books to a more general focus on your wider career, is there one thing you've done in your writing more than any other that you feel has been the secret to your success? That's a great question. Um, I think the best thing I've done, though it wasn't really a conscious choice, was um, not to listen to the market. 
to write what I really wanted to read and uh, to be ruthless with my writing. So I didn't try to write a Sex in the City chiclet kind of book um, when those were popular because I, I knew I didn't know how to. And I, um, I just thought, I'm going to write this book. This is the kind of book I'd love to read. And, and that's been true even as my books shift slightly in their focus. Um, I try not to think about what the market says or what the data says. I just think about what's the next book I want to write. Because what's been true is that if I wanted to read it, it seems like other people share that as well. And, um, and it's hard, you know, it's hard to be an author, as you know, and there's so much information out there. So what do you listen to and what do you ignore? I've, I've always kind of ignored everything. I always say ignorance has served me well <laughs> because um, <laughs> I, I just kind of listen to, to what I want to do in the next six months or nine months of my life. What book do I want to write then? And, um, and being ruthless with my books has served me really well too. I'm not one of those authors who's in love with her work. I don't say like, oh, I had the best day writing. I just, you know, words just flew out of me like bluebirds, you know, <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I struggle over every page and I'm critical of every page, but it's, it's helped because, um, because I think, you know, in some ways I've worked harder than like the super talented people because um, it doesn't flow for me. It's not easy. And so I, I pour over every page and every story and try to make it the absolute best I can be. It's wonderful. Refreshing to hear you say you don't listen to the market. I noticed that you had a quiet year in 2016. If you look at your list of books, there's plenty published either side of that year. Oh, yeah. I just wondered if you felt you needed a sabbatical or a little bit of time out. I um, Let's see. I had finished the Blue Heron series and I had, um, I had a book out in the fall. And then my next book didn't come out till the next winter. That was more of a decision on um, my publisher's part to give the women's fiction book a longer time in the marketplace as opposed with, um, with the romances, which tend to go more quickly once they hit the shelves. So, um, so I, I did take a break after, um, between finishing on second thought and writing my upcoming book, which is called good luck with that. And I was in between contracts and I just, I hadn't taken a break in um, 14 years of writing. I had finished a book and started another one within the week. And I thought, you know, I'm not on deadline at this moment, trying to think about, you know, what I want, if I want to stay with my current publisher or move, um, and just wanted to kind of uh, think about the next book that I wanted to write. So it was really fun to have that time. I ended up researching a lot for this book and, um, and attending all the other aspects of being a writer, which as you know, Jenny, are not just writing fiction, you know, they're, they're marketing and, and interacting and social media and, and newsletters and blogs and all that stuff. So it was, um, it was a nice little rest. Yes. Yeah. Turning to Kristen as a reader, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading. And I'd say your books are the perfect diet for binge reading. But do you, you, you say you're a very, very, um, active reader yourself 
Who do you like to binge read? Right now I'm binge reading K.M. Jackson, who writes a small town contemporary series. Um, and the food in her books <laughs> is dangerous. It's so, she, she writes about, well, she, all of her writing is very rich and luscious and layered. And then she talks about food in the same way. And the book I'm reading now is um, set around a family-run bakery pie shop. So I'm starving all the time. <laughs> but I I love her books. Um, Sonali Dave is a huge favorite of mine. And um, I, I recommend her very highly for lovers of women's fiction. She's got the most beautiful way with words. And then um, for something a little bit different, I binge read Sherry Thomas's Lady Sherlock series, which is this brilliant twist on Sherlock Holmes, where um, Lady Sherlock is our protagonist. And she's a bit on the spectrum um, in Victorian England. So it's a really, a really brilliant series. And Sherry is such a gifted writer. So those are three recommendations right there. They all sound great. And I haven't heard of those three from other people. So that's wonderful. Great. Look, circling around to the, from the beginning to the end, at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? No, I, I've been really lucky. Readers have been so wonderful to me. Um, deciding to become a writer was a shot in the dark and um, and the readers picked up my book and recommended it. And I've, I've really had a very lucky, blissful, blessed career. And so uh, I wouldn't change a thing. You've obviously also worked very hard. I notice you say that you basically turned around books and were into the next one the next week. That's fairly um, nose to the grindstone, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You can't rule out hard work in, in a career. Um, and, uh, and it is hard work, but aside from being a mother, it's the best hard work I've ever done. <laughs> That's wonderful. So what's next for Kristen as a writer? New projects under development? Yes, I have um, two books in the hopper. One is called Good Luck With That, and that comes out this summer. And that tackles an issue that I think speaks to every woman, which is uh, self-acceptance and body image and how closely those two issues are intertwined. So it's the story of three friends who met as teenagers at weight loss camp and a list that they made when they were teenagers. And then 17 or 18 years later, that list resurfaces and uh, when one of the friends dies. And so it's a book about friendship and second chances and most of all, really coming to, to love and take care of and accept yourself exactly as you are. And then um, I just passed in another book uh, which is called Life and Other Inconveniences. And um, that one is a multi-generational story about uh, a family, uh, three women, a teenager, uh, a 35-year-old, her mother, the teenager's mother, and the grandmother who raised uh, the 35-year-old. And so um, that one is, I'm really excited about too, and that comes out next summer. 2019. Love both those titles. They're both fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> so we're running out of time. This has been wonderful to have a chance to talk. 
Where can readers find you online? And do you welcome, um, you know, reader contact? Oh, yes. I'm I'm really intimate with my readers. Um, I answer all my mail myself. And uh, so you can find me at kristenhiggins.com. And um, all my links are there to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that. So it's been really lovely talking to you, Jenny. Thank you so much. I'll look for those next coming books with a great deal of anticipation. Thank you so much, Krista. You're welcome. Have a great day. Same to you, dear. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.